Good morning, everyone, and uh, I want to thank uh, all of you who uh, are attending this important hearing. And uh, today uh, we are going to discuss the international response to the COVID-19 pandemic and the future uh, pandemic preparedness, prevention, and response. Uh, the, the hearing will focus on Senate Bill 3829, which Senator Murphy and I have uh, introduced, the Global Health Security and Diplomacy Act. Uh, it's written on paper, not on stone, which we'll uh, talk about uh, a little bit uh, in the future here. This is an important endeavor that uh, this committee is going to take up. Indeed, uh, uh, probably one of the weightiest matters that uh, we'll deal with as we attempt to create a new shield uh, to prevent uh, a COVID virus uh, type attack from happening again. Uh, the COVID-19 global pandemic has reaffirmed what we've long known, and that is infectious diseases, particularly those of viral nature, do not respect borders. They're a threat, and a threat anywhere is a threat everywhere. We've been right here to focus on, on our domestic response to this pandemic, but we ignore the spread overseas at our own peril for obvious reasons. It is essential that we respond now to help our partners who are not yet experiencing significant spread to get testing, tracing, and quarantine procedures in place and to help our partners who already are under uh, siege avert a worst case scenario. We need to also focus on protecting access to food, livelihoods, water, sanitation, and hygiene. Protecting in existing uh, investments in immunizations, maternal and child health, and other infectious diseases are important at this time also. And we need to work with partner countries and organizations to ensure that our aid reaches those who need it most. Without aiding and abetting corruption, human rights violations, and uh, democratic backsliding, which we all know uh, frequently happens in the world when we start focusing on something else. Uh, at the same time, we need to figure out how uh, to get ahead of the next global pandemic. Indeed, that's what uh, the focus of this hearing is going to be on. Uh, and again, uh, the, the vehicle we're talking about is Senate Bill 3829, but it is for discussion purposes, and uh, we look for every possible improvement to that bill that, uh, that we can make. Uh, this hearing is uh, one of a number uh, that I'm going to undertake as we construct uh, Senate Bill 3829 uh, to go forward. And the purpose of it is to, as I said, construct a shield that is better than the shield that we have. I've repeatedly said that uh, what we need is a fire station and a fire department ready and able to put out a fire before it burns the, the entire world. Over the years, we've come to expect that the World Health Organization would play a role. The World Health Organization uh, has uh, done great work in many respects. Uh, it does pay, play a key role as the guardian of the international health regulations and as the clearinghouse of global health data and best practices. And it has done remarkable work in combating polio and eradicating smallpox, uh, but its response to fast-moving emergencies such as a, a Ebola and COVID-19 has exposed uh, significant weaknesses that uh, the WHO has. But we are not here to demean or to criticize or condemn uh, the WHO. 
Rather, what we're here to do is to have a, a fair analysis of uh, what the response was and how their structure uh, is uh, constructed that uh, has caused uh, the weaknesses we have. I, uh, Dr. Tedros and his management team were very kind uh, to spend some time with me early on, uh, and they uh, explained to me what their uh, objectives were and how they were attempting to uh, do it. They made some very fair points, and it truly is obvious that uh, they did uh, uh, they did things that uh, could have been done differently, and they will be the first to admit that. In, in addition to reforming who, uh, and, and truly there is some reform that's needed, uh, and, and it should be done, as I said, without demeaning, criticizing, or condemning, but rather in a, the kindest way possible uh, to make it work better. And it, uh, we need... Um, we need an, an international financing mechanism that will re-energize action under the global health security agenda so we can help countries with a high commitment but low capacity to improve their pandemic preparedness and response. And we need a long-term fix to the coordination problems that have long plagued U.S. country teams operating overseas. We need a single accountable entity housed at the Department of State to lead diplomatic efforts and coordinate the efforts of the agencies implementing global health security assistance overseas. This accountable entity would not, I repeat, not replace the central role of the NSC in coordinating global health security policy across the whole of government here in Washington. Alternatively, it would ensure the effectiveness of global health security programs at the mission level. We put these ideas forward in this bipartisan bill, the Global Health Security and Diplomacy Act and have invited uh, all those who wish to participate uh, to do so. This has to be a bipartisan effort. It's not too late to get back on track and to restore the long-standing tradition of bipartisanship that has characterized every successful U.S. global health program uh, of the past 20 years. And it's not too late to focus our efforts on addressing the current COVID-19 pandemic overseas in a manner that saves lives and protects the United States from future waves of infection. Uh, but uh, let there be no mistake about it, uh, this bill is designed uh, to look at the future. There is no doubt this is going to happen again. Uh, we've been told that the uh, bat population, uh, particularly in the Wuhan area in China, contains about 2,000 viruses. Uh, this, of course, pandemic was caused by one of these viruses uh, jumping from one species to another, from a bat to a human being. Uh, what happened after that has uh, been greatly debated, but we know uh, what the result was, and we know that the result was not good, and we, we know that there were failures along the line, and we know that we can do better. There's no other group uh, more qualified than this committee of the United States Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee uh, to undertake this proposition. Uh, this is something that we owe America, we owe the world, and we can do this. Uh, I'm committed to do that. I, uh, I would hope that every member uh, on the committee will help focus on this as one of the most important things that we do. Uh, it will be a legacy that will be incredibly important uh, for uh, future generations, and uh, we know that uh, the world cannot uh, withstand much more of what we've seen uh, that we got from uh, the, the COVID-19 uh, uh, 
infection that uh, went through the world. So with that, uh, I hope that uh, we as a committee uh, do what we try to do, and uh, that is focus with civility, kindness, understanding, and tolerance. As uh, we hear from everyone, every, we're, we're going to have a lot of different ideas. There's going to be a lot of uh, ideas that are uh, uh, that are that, that people have strong feelings on. Uh, I hope people will uh, do their best to listen carefully to what others have to say, and uh, listen to uh, uh, defenses that uh, people make to what has happened. But more importantly, listen carefully uh, to what uh, people tell us. Uh, they've learned that will help us in the future. And uh, in a bipartisan fashion that's done with kindness and, and uh, civility, I have every confidence we can develop a bill that can pass this Congress, be signed by the President, become law, and uh, really be a, uh, a, a tremendous benefit uh, to our fellow human beings uh, as we go forward. With that, uh, I'll turn the time to Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, <clears throat> for convening today's hearing. As you know, I have been seeking a series of hearings on COVID for quite some time, and I'm pleased that we are now having one, and I understand you intend to hold more, and I strongly support that. But let me start by speaking to the larger concerns that the Democratic minority recently wrote to you about. We must have serious and sustained focus on U.S. foreign policy and a serious oversight agenda. And we want to work with you to make that happen. Mr. Chairman, we should be having more public hearings. We need to tackle some of the major challenges that confront us, Afghanistan, Venezuela, North Korea, just to mention some. And we need to ensure the Secretary of State testifies before this committee. We should all be shocked and frankly offended that the Secretary is refusing to appear, refusing to defend the administration's foreign affairs budget, and we should all be insisting on his appearance. This could be the first time in over 20 years that a Secretary of State has not testified before this committee to explain administration priorities. And I guess after Ambassador Bolton's book, we probably will never see him again. This lack of engagement fundamentally undermines our work. Not only does the Secretary of State feel comfortable in refusing to come before us, that refusal apparently extends to other Senate-confirmed officials. We have only heard from one Senate-confirmed official this entire year. And the administration has repeatedly ignored oversight inquiries. Many of them are even bipartisan. We don't need to rehash the contentious vote on Michael Pack, but we should all be seriously concerned about what we've seen in the last 10 days and 24 hours at the U.S. Agency for Global <laughs> Media. Mr. Pack has gone on a wholesale firing spree, removing the heads of the networks, dissolving their corporate boards, only to replace them with unqualified political people, fundamentally undermining the mission and work of the organization. It's now obvious why the White House wanted Pack so badly, so they can transform the agency into their own personal mouthpiece. This is a blow from which it may never recover. Once the credibility is gone, no one will ever trust a report from Radio Free Europe, Radio Marti, nor trust the tools of the Open Technology Fund. So Mr. Chairman, I would just urge you to respond to the letter that we sent you in the spirit in which it was offered. On behalf of myself and all the Democratic members of the committee, I can tell you that we want to work with you and we want to find common ground. We want the State Department to be successful 
and we want this committee to take on serious and meaningful work that will make an impact on the national and global stage. So let's work together to make that happen. Now, while I thank all of our witnesses for their service, it is disappointing that the White House would not send a member of the Coronavirus Task Force or any of the Senate-confirmed individuals from the State Department, Health and Human Services, or the United States Agency for International Development responsible for administration's response. The American people deserve to hear from members of the President's hand-picked team to understand what it is doing to address the worst pandemic the world has faced in 100 years. More than 8 million cases worldwide, more than 115,000 American lives lost. In my own home state of New Jersey, which is the second largest um, state in the nation in terms of COVID deaths, I am uh, vividly reminded of this consequence. This tragedy was assuredly been a wake-up call to those who question whether we should engage with and invest in the rest of the world. So I'd like to use this hearing to understand how we got here, what we knew about the virus and when, and how we are leveraging our diplomatic relationships and leadership to best respond and protect the American people. So far, most of what we've seen is a lot of bluster, finger pointing, and retrenchment. Yes, we should examine the World Health Organization's initial response. I wish we had someone from the State Department's Bureau of International Organizations here to do exactly that. But we also know that the U.S. was regularly communicating with and receiving information from the WHO, including through U.S. government employees embedded at WHO headquarters in Geneva. And rather than seriously consider how to best leverage our leadership and contributions, the President abruptly announced the U.S. would simply pull out of the organization, threatening not just our ability to confront COVID-19, but risking decades of progress on other global health initiatives, including combating polio and Ebola. And yes, China has a lot to answer for, but the administration's use of racially stigmatizing language to describe COVID-19 in direct contradiction to guidance issued by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has been deeply hurtful to Americans at home and utterly counterproductive in leading an international response. The Secretary of State's insistence that the rest of the world agreed to use such language has prevented us from reaching consensus at the G7 and in the Security Council. And while the White House engages in divisive rhetoric, the rest of the world is stepping up without us. When Chinese President Xi Jinping addressed the World Health Assembly in May, he pledged $2 billion over two years to combat COVID-19. In contrast, when Secretary Azar addressed the assembly, he attacked the WHO and cast blame on China. The European Union held a pledging conference on vaccines last month at which over $8 billion was raised. The White House declined the invitation to participate for reasons that are beyond me. Is this what the administration means by America first? Well, if this EU consortium comes up with a vaccine before we do, it'll mean America last. This approach is not only isolationist, short-sighted and foolish, it endangers American lives. Finally, as the old saying goes, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I'm all for ensuring the US government is better organized to prevent, detect, and respond to future pandemics both here and abroad. But some of the proposals coming out of the administration, eerily similar to those coming from some members of Congress, are ill-thought 
destructive and dangerous in so far that they would cripple USAID and create a mechanism at the World Bank through which the administration could channel all of the funding it's withholding from the WHO. So I look forward to the first of what I hope are many thorough discussions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much. We will now proceed to do exactly what I said we were going to do, and that is examine this with an eye towards constructing a shield for the future. And of course, that uh, does require some discussion of uh, what happened and how we got here. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, uh, I, I want, I'm hoping we will continue to focus the discussion just as Senator Murphy and my bill has done in Senate Bill 3829, and that is look forward. So uh, with that, uh, we have a distinguished panel today, uh, uh, certainly uh, people with outstanding knowledge uh, in this area and uh, who can uh, help us uh, understand what uh, the, the task at hand and, uh, and how we can accomplish that task. So uh, first of all, we uh, have Mr. James Richardson, who serves as a director of the Office of Foreign Assistance, where he coordinates $35 billion in foreign assistance across the Department of State and the U.S. Agency for International Development. Uh, prior to this, uh, he coordinated USAID's Transformation Task Team and served as assistant to the administrator for policy planning and learning. He has 20 years of government experience and holds a Bachelor's of Science in Government, a Master's of Science in Defense and Strategic Studies, and as a graduate of the United States Air Force uh, Command and Staff College. Um, Mr. Richardson, thank you so much. Give us the benefit uh, of your wisdom. Great. Th thank you, Chairman Risch, uh, Ranking Member Menendez, and members of this committee. Thank you for inviting me to testify on the international response to the COVID-19 pandemic. As a former staffer to a member on this committee, it's great to be back, and I look forward to having this opportunity to have a dialogue and answer any of your questions. First, I need to acknowledge the leadership of President Trump, Vice President Pence, Secretary Pompeo, and really the myriad of teams we have all around the world at State and USAID who are working together to defeat COVID-19. For those who may not be familiar, I'm the Director of the Office of Foreign Assistance, which is a joint office between both State and USAID, and we coordinate foreign assistance on behalf of the Secretary. As the chairman mentioned prior to that, I was at USAID where I led the agency's historic transformation, looking for ways to strengthen the power of development and improve the institution. As such, I believe deeply in the power of both development and diplomacy, but together I think they can be unstoppable. The United States is the world's undisputed leader in foreign assistance. We've invested $500 billion over the past 20 years 140 of that in global health alone. The United States has built and sustained health systems across the globe, trained millions of healthcare workers and saved millions of lives. COVID has posed a unique challenge to the United States and the entire world, as you know, impacting both high-income and developing countries alike. The numbers speak for themselves. The State Department has received nearly 1,000 requests from almost every country in the world. In the face of COVID, the generosity of the American people has been on full display, with more than 12 billion in financial, humanitarian, scientific, and technical support to combat the crisis. Of that total, Congress has appropriated $1.6 billion to state and USAID for the international response. First, thank you for that. This money is being well spent. We've committed so far $1.3 billion of that 
and our assistance has gone to 120 countries, and it's making true impact. Of note, we've obligated 500 mil, over 500 million of that with the plan to quickly obligate the rest. We have provided much-needed ventilators in El Salvador. We've trained 20,000 frontline workers in India. We funded public health service announcements on how to fight the virus in more than 50 languages. State and USAID has undertaken unprecedented coordination in the COVID response. That coordination has not slowed us down, but actually ensured alignment and effectiveness of our resources. For when people's lives are at stake, we need to make sure we get this right. While the COVID-19 pandemic is certainly not over, I firmly believe that we need to start thinking about today what systems the U.S. and the world needs to lessen the likelihood of another outbreak becoming a global pandemic. When looking across both the, this, this pandemic and, and, and epidemics and, and, and pandemics of the past, I think we can pull some important lessons learned. But the bottom line up front is that moving forward, I hope we can all agree that more data, more coordination, and more response functions are appropriate, are, are necessary to respond to future outbreaks and prevent pandemics. So the first lesson learned is that pandemics aren't just a development challenge or confined to the developing world. They are truly global in scope with the risk of severe health and economic impact across the globe. For instance, of the countries with the highest percentage of COVID-related deaths, almost none of them have US government bilateral global health programs. As such, US leadership needs to not just focus on the development piece, which is critically important, but also have a broader scope, focusing on mobilizing countries' own resources, burden sharing with like-minded donors, and building true accountability into the global system. The second lesson is that the US government and the global system must be prepared to respond internationally and strengthen accountability. Coordination in the US government is key. We have to leverage the existing strengths of each department and agency for maximum impact. As I often say, true coordination is not about control. It's about empowerment. We have to unleash the power of our di diplomacy, of our development, of our public health uh, efforts, so in order to maximize our impact. We also need to ensure that the global structures can effectively prevent and contain outbreaks from becoming epidemics and pandemics. The third lesson is the world needs more effective early warning systems and data tracking. And lastly, we need to think holistically about preparedness and be flexible. We understand that the challenges that we may face can come in many different forms, and that our response will ult ultimately be multifaceted. So we need to start thinking and planning for all of those inevitabilities today. In the age of globalization, I fear that the next outbreak will look more like this one than in outbreaks that we have dealt with in the past. But we have an opportunity to save lives, promote accountability, and ensure that pandemics are prevented to the greatest extent possible. We need systems that are flexible, focused, and truly global. We need to fill the gaps in the system while coordinating and leveraging the respective comparative advantages and unique strengths of each aspect of the U.S. government. Time and time again, when there is a global challenge, Americans lead. We are the world's greatest humanitarians in, that the world has ever seen. And I'm committed to working with all of you to make to strengthen this fact. 
Thank you for having me today, and I look forward to your questions and this important conversation. Thanks so much. Uh, great comments. Uh, Mr. Milligan uh, serves as counselor to USAID. He pre previously served as the acting mission director in Madagascar, mission director in Burma, senior development advisor for the first uh, quadrennial diplomatic and development review, and senior deputy assistant administrator for policy, planning, and learning. He has a bachelor's degree from Georgetown School of Foreign Service, a master's degree from John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and is a distinguished graduate of the National War College. With that, uh, Mr. Milligan, uh, thank you for uh, coming. We'd like to hear what you have to say. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman Reich, Ranking Member Menendez, members of the committee. It is really an honor to be here today. And let me begin first by thanking you for your generosity, which has allowed the United States Agency for International Development to mount a robust response to the COVID-19 pandemic. I have been a Foreign Service Officer at USAID for more than 30 years, and I currently serve as the Agency Counselor, which is the senior most career official of the agency. And throughout my career, I have seen the United States respond to crises all over the world, and I have led some of those responses themselves, such as the response to the Haiti earthquake. I have seen how the United States saves lives, how we support our partner countries, and how we stand with them when disaster strikes. The scale of COVID-19 response is unprecedented, but these core American values are constant. In the past 10 years, USAID has been on the front line to fight numerous complex health emergencies, including the outbreaks of Ebola in West Africa, Zika in Latin America and the Caribbean, and the pneumonic plague in Madagascar, one I know quite well. We are continuing to fight Ebola in the DRC, and we are in this fight for the long term because that is what we do, and that is who we are as Americans. Through these experiences, USAID has developed deep operational and technical expertise to respond quickly, rapidly, and appropriately to complex health crises. The United States government is strongest when we are agile and flexible and well-coordinated particularly at the country level. I know from my own experience, out-of-control epidemics are a symptom of multiple complex causes, and health emergencies have consequences that can rapidly require broader development assistance to address those deeper root causes of instability and poor governance. Controlling epidemics requires more than a standalone effort. And we have seen that when we do not address poor governance and conflict, we wipe out the investments in health and education and other basic social services. USAID has development experience to address these issues and prevent outbreaks from becoming epidemics. But we are hampered. We are hampered when countries such as the People's Republic of China and other malign actors do not disclose information transparently or share pathogen samples and instead destroy samples and obfuscate facts, imprison medical personnel, and silence journalists. In stark contrast, USAID builds capacity and strengthens healthcare systems and democratic institutions to enable countries themselves to respond better to global health crises, and that protects us back home. <coughs> we appreciate your support for retaining the independence to make these investments ourselves based on data and the best available evidence. Today, faced with COVID-19, 
The United States is again demonstrating clear and decisive leadership. USAID is investing $1.2 billion in emergency supplemental foreign assistance, generously appropriated by Congress, to finance health care, humanitarian assistance, economic security, and stabilization efforts worldwide. This funding is saving lives. It's also improving public health education and protecting health workers, strengthening laboratory systems, and supporting disease surveillance, and boosting rapid response capacity in over 100 countries around the world. We are leveraging our development programming to complement our global efforts because we recognize that COVID-19 will have extensive secondary and tertiary order impacts. So taking health out of a broader development approach and isolating it will not lead to success. We must empower our health and development experts to do what they do best in the field, to respond to dangerous infectious diseases. It is imperative that we act proactively and address the ways in many ways, this crisis has not only cost lives, but threatened development outcomes. We are very concerned about these secondary and tertiary impacts. We are concerned about the more than 113 million people who will need emergency food assistance in the coming year. It's a 25% increase. We are seeing a disturbing trend of a rolling back of dem democratic reform and democratic backsliding, closing a space for civil society. We are investing not only in food security, but also in combating this democratic backsliding. These investments build responsive, transparent government. USAID's response to the COVID pandemic contributes to the United States remaining a trusted and preferred partner in countries around the world. No other country can match our unparalleled generosity, our open and collaborative approach, our long-term commitment to helping others <coughs> on the journey to self-reliance. So that is why I greatly appreciate the ability to be here today and testify in front of this committee. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, it's good, uh, good information. Uh, Mr. Garrett uh, Grigsby is the director of the Office of Global Affairs at the Department of Health and Human Services, which leads U.S. engagement with the World Health Organization and its regional offices. He previously served as USAID's Deputy Assistant Administrator for Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance as USAID's Director of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives, uh, and as Deputy St Staff Director for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, with that, uh, Mr. Grigsby, we're uh, anxious to hear what you have to say about uh, our relationship with WHO and uh, how we'll move forward. Thank you, sir. Uh, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Menendez, and members of the committee, it's an honor to be with you to discuss the World Health Organization and the Global Health Security Agenda, or GHSA. Last month, Secretary Azar addressed the World Health Assembly, uh, WHO's governing body, expressing concerns with WHO and member state response to the COVID-19 outbreak. The committee is aware of the President's statements and letter expressing his concerns in his May 29 statement that the United States is terminating its relationship with WHO. With respect to WHO, allow me to go back even before the first reporting of the outbreak in Wuhan, China, and highlight the concerns, and then I'll address GHSA. After the SARS pandemic that also originated in China, the International Health Regulations, or IHRs, were revised in 2005 to improve transparency and reinforce obligations of countries to provide accurate, timely, and complete information about outbreaks. After the 2014 West Africa Ebola crisis, 
the, w the WHO Health Emergencies Program was created, and it's had some success on the ground responding to complex emergencies, but it has not met the goal, the global challenge of COVID-19. 14 years after SARS, China failed again to provide accurate, timely, and complete information to WHO about its COVID-19 outbreak, and in fact, withheld information that could have helped countries take actions earlier to protect public health. WHO did not call out the Chinese government, which we believe exacerbated the pandemic. Early statements from WHO leadership praised the Chinese government while criticizing others. When missteps of China and WHO became apparent, our team compiled information to identify gaps in WHO's outbreak response toolkit. This led to discussions with partner countries about reform of WHO. For example, WHO's Director General must demand compliance with IHR obligations. The Director General and WHO's Health Emergency Program must be insulated from malign political pressure. Improvements to the process for declaring a public health emergency of international concern are overdue. And linking travel and trade restrictions together must be re-examined so countries can take proactive measures like the U.S. did to protect our citizens without criticism or retaliation. Enacting these reforms, regardless of the United States' relationship with WHO, would be good for the world. The WHO will only live up to its mandate with increased transparency and accountability of all member states. Switching to the global health security agenda, 18 months into phase two, called GHSA 2024, the need for a multi-sectoral approach to pandemic preparedness is greater now than ever. GHSA was created in the midst of the 2014 West Africa Ebola crisis to help countries comply with the IHRs. GHSA uh, is a group of 67 countries, international organizations, NGOs, and companies working together to prepare for infectious disease threats. Under GHSA, nations make concrete commitments to elevate health security and improve capacities to prevent detect and respond to infectious diseases as a national priority. GHSA members provide support for implementation through advocacy, collaboration, information sharing, and technical advice. The U.S. is a leading voice on the GHSA 2024 steering group as chair of the Accountability and Results Task Force, ensuring the focus on addressing gaps and challenges in countries' core capacities. The target is to have more than 100 countries with improved capacities by 2024. It seeks to improve accountability and tracks partner commitments in a transparent manner. We also collaborate with partners as chair of the Sustainable Financing for Preparedness Action Package to mobilize resources for, for preparedness. HHS works with many countries to improve health security capacities pursuant to GHSA commitments. This includes helping complete a joint external evaluation to assess preparedness, developing national action plans, and mobilizing resources. As GHSA core capacities are based on the international health regulations, both efforts I've discussed 
leading GHSA 2024 and forging ahead on WHO reforms focused on strengthening the IHRs are mutually reinforcing and will help bring about a safer world. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. We look forward to working with the Committee on Global Health Security. Well, thank you. thanks to all of you. Uh, uh, it certainly looks like we've got the right panel here for, uh, to give us the information we need to, uh, to try to go forward. Mr. Richardson, let me say, first of all, thank you for reminding us of how critical and pivotal the role of the United States is in, uh, in any kind of a, a global uh, challenge. Uh, and most importantly, how generous Americans are. The 330 million of us compared to the 8 billion in the world contribute uh, an incredibly high percentage of uh, the aid that's, uh, that, that is given to less fortunate people. Um, you made one statement that I'd like to uh, focus on a little bit, and uh, I'm, I'm gonna follow up on this with, uh, uh, with Mr. Uh, uh, Grigsby also, but uh, you said you, you, you fear that future pandemics are gonna look a lot more like this uh, COVID-19 than the, the ones that we've uh, experienced in the past. Uh, your, your thought, could, could you drill down on that a little bit? Why do you say that and what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, uh, I appreciate the question, Senator. I, I think when we start looking at what is the real differences between this pandemic and, and whether it's Ebola or SARS, um, both of those were fairly localized in, um, in scope. Um, the, the challenges that they presented were probably overwhelmingly uh, focused on the developing world. Um, and, and this pandemic, and I think given the, the globalization realities that we find, the fact that we can easily travel around the world and that's continuing to accelerate, uh, I, I fear that that mobility will drive uh, uh, epidemics, the outbreaks somewhere to, to then be able to be spread more easily through, through the, the developed world in addition to the developing world. And you know, let me, let me stop you there. Is that the, the, as I look at these things on these, the differences in the virals, take just Ebola compared to COVID, um, the transmission mechanism is very different on the two it seems to be, and the, the uh, contagiousness of the disease seems to be very different. And with 2,000 viruses kicking around out there, they're probably all gonna have idiosyncrasies that are different than others. Is that, is that what you're making reference to? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think when you, when you really look at what the, the challenge that we are presented with, the, the, the likelihood of transmission, the globalization of, our, of, of, of this world, and the ability for viruses to, to quickly move outside of a containment area, uh, that's, a, that's a game changer. Um, and again, the, given the fact that it's been able to impact the, the high-income countries like it, the way it has, I think really makes us want to rethink how we approach this. Yeah, that's, that's what we're trying to do right here, and that's exactly the focus of what we're doing. And I think, <clears throat> I, I think your identification there is, uh, is, is important. Uh, I'm, in a minute, I'm going to ask Mr. Grigsby a little bit uh, more about that because of the system we need to put in place. It seems to me that COVID-19, because of the way it transmitted and the rap, uh, rapidity at which it uh, transmitted, is so different than those other things that we've had in the past. And in the defense of the systems that were trying to respond to this, they weren't ready for that. Uh, they didn't expect it. They expected that it would behave like 
SARS or like Ebola or, or something like that. And what we found out is that it, uh, it behaved very differently and required a very different response, and that didn't happen. Am I, is that a correct characterization? No, absolutely. I, I think when you, when you look at, um, uh, we're not really sure what the next outbreak or next virus will look like or what it will do. Um, I, I think the, I'll leave it to the scientists to talk about you know, how it's transmitted or how much more it can, it can move easily. Um, but I think our systems are not built for this type of, pan, of, of outbreak leading to this type of, uh, clearly, it's, it didn't work, right? So, so we need to, we, it, was, it did not stop the ability for, for this to become a global pandemic. So really need to think about what kind of flexible mechanisms, both in the international system and in the US government, that we can put into place now that allows us to be able to respond both at an outbreak and at a pandemic level that is able to say, you know, regardless of what the, the, the virus is or regardless of how, what, where, the, where the outbreak starts and where it goes, we need to have an ability to respond. And this sort of, this idea of a worldwide ability to, to respond is incredibly critical. Yeah. Well, and that's what Senator Murphy and I and this committee are focused on as far as trying to develop this system here. And thank you for being part of that. Mr. Grigsby, um, you know, in my conversations with uh, Mr. Tedros and his team, um, they were defensive uh, in one respect, I think was legitimate, and that is they said they didn't have enough power. And regardless of, of our criticism of them, uh, we do have to realize that they're not a sovereign entity, and they don't, they can't really tell a sovereign entity what to do. They can certainly encourage them and try to uh, press them to do the, to do the right thing. But it struck me that uh, along with this conversation I, I was uh, just having with Mr. Richardson, that they as much as the rest of the world were taken aback by how COVID-19 reacted compared to their dealings with polio or AIDS or Ebola or something like that. Is that a fair assessment of, uh, of where they were as far as being taken aback by, by what happened? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, you know, it's fair to say, as, as Jim was alluding to, um, COVID-19 was a novel virus. It's one that had not been seen uh, in human beings before. There's still a lot that we're learning about it. Um, and by the way, we'd be happy to come up and brief you or your staff, um, not myself, but we have uh, leading scientists in the world at HHS, and, and they could answer some of these questions very specifically for you. They are still learning about this. I think that's a fair comment. And it is true, and that is a challenge, uh, that the World Health Organization um, does not have a police force, it does not have a standing army to go in and enforce uh, the international health obligations, which is only one of two treaties um, that, are, that are in the, the WHO that countries have signed up to and, and are obliged to comply with. Um, but I think what we all know is that rather than even calling China out, um, what was really going on is that uh, the leadership of WHO was praising China. Um, this has happened before. Uh, we've been in this movie before. Um, if you go back to the SARS uh, situation in the early 2000s, um, the leadership of uh, the WHO was a little more bolder when it, when it was confronting China, and then it did call China out 
there were significant problems that happened. Uh, that led, as I mentioned in my statement, to a revision of the international health regulations in 2005. Uh, but there's only so much that it can do. But it didn't even do the minimum it could have done, as in calling out what was really going on, uh, the information that it needed, that it was not receiving. That didn't happen at all, unfortunately. Thank you. I, I'm uh, going to end here and turn it over to Senator Menendez. Before I do, what I want you to think about is, we focused quite a bit on what didn't happen and why it didn't. And uh, what what I would like to hear when we come back, when I come back to you, is I, I want your thoughts as what a system would look like to if we were designing it now, which we are hopefully uh, for the next pandemic that has uh, uh, the transmission as uh, rapid and easily as as COVID nineteen. Because as we've now, I think all agreed this is entirely different than what we've dealt with in the past. We need a system entirely different than what we've had in the past. And we want your thoughts on that as to how we would go forward. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Chairman, just a comment. Uh, I, I agree that we need to continue working on a bipartisan approach. Before the last business meeting, we were working well on a bipartisan manager's package, and I, along with the all the other Democrats on the committee introduced the COVID-19 International Response and Recovery Act, and I hope we can find a common ground and a productive path forward, and I look forward to that opportunity. Uh, Mr. Grisby, uh, I want to pick off in your last set of comments here, as well as your testimony, that China did not share sufficient information about the virus, and you just said that the WHO's words of praise for China actually exacerbated the pandemic because it did not pressure China to be more transparent. But President Trump himself praised China's response multiple times in speeches, public statements, and tweets. Quite explicitly, in one tweet on January 24th, he wrote, China has been working very hard to contain the coronavirus. The United States greatly appreciates their efforts and transparency. It will all work out well. In particular, on behalf of the American people, I want to thank President Xi, close quote. On February 6th, at the WHO Executive Board meeting, Ambassador Bremberg, who represented the United States, was similarly effusive, saying, quote, we deeply appreciate all that China is doing on behalf of its own people and the world, and we look forward to continuing to work together as we move ahead in response to the coronavirus, close quote. So those are just some of the quotes. So, was the WHO's praise for China the fatal flaw, which necessitated the U.S. withdrawal from the WHO? And if so, why did the United States make similar statements of praise and support for China at the same time if this was detrimental to the global pandemic response? Uh, thank you, Senator. Uh, the comments you made are absolutely correct. Um, early on, the information we were receiving was that uh, China was being cooperative, we were getting those reports from the World Health Organization. I remember having conversations early on at, at my level and uh, members of WHO telling me how uh, unbelievably transparent China was being, particularly compared to the SARS um, problem in the early 2000s. Uh, what happened was we received more information later, as we all have had, and information is going to continue to come out. Um, and as that information changed, um, the tone changed, and that's just a fair comment. Uh, 
Um, uh, last month, the World Health Assembly approved a resolution uh, co-sponsored by, in fact, it, because it was a virtual assembly and much condensed uh, as opposed to the normal meetings, uh, they weren't able to do a lot of business. They had one item, and that was a, a resolution uh, co-sponsored by 140 countries uh, expressing concern, but also uh, demanding that there be an independent review of what happened, uh, including about the origins of the, of the disease and its path to uh, transmission to humans. Um, so a lot of, a lot of countries were um, uh, saying good things about China's response early on, but then as more information came out, and it will continue to come out with these independent well, reviews. Well, I, I look forward to the review, and I certainly believe it's important. Uh, but the president's praise continued even after the ones I mentioned. Let me ask you this. You listed several reforms the administration would like to see at the WHO, including pressure for better compliance with international health regulation obligations and improving the process for declaring public health emergencies of international concern. That would be good for the world. But the Director General is not the person who decides on those reforms. It's the WHO, which is a member organization. Member countries make those decisions. How does the United States expect to influence other members uh, to achieve reforms at the WHO if it has relinquished its seat at the table? Um, Senator, that's a, that's a good question, and I appreciate it. The fact of the matter is, um, uh, the United States uh, is a member of the World Health Organization now. The President has announced that uh, that relationship is being terminated and... Um, well, if, I've, if I said I'm terminating my relationship with you, why should I listen to you? Um, I, Can you explain that to me? I, if you tell me you're terminating your relationship with me, why should I listen to you about anything you want to do with the organization that I no longer am going to have a relationship with? Well, why don't I tell you what we're actually doing? Um, no, why don't you answer my question? I'm doing that, sir. Uh, the, as you know, the, the United States is, uh, has the presidency of, of the G7 this year. That provides us an opportunity to um, speak with health ministries. In fact, uh, Secretary Azar has, since early on in the pandemic, had um, once a week telephone conversations with all health ministers of the G7. Um, as the situation with COVID-19 became more apparent. Uh, there was a focus on reform of the WHO. Those, those um, conversations continue. And um, some of the countries have asked us the same question. Uh, it's in the interest of the United States whether or not we're a member of the WHO to have a WHO that uh, performs better. Um, well, I, I, I appreciate your lengthy answer, which is a non-answer as far as I'm concerned. The reality is you have not made it clear to me how you're going to affect change at the WHO when you've terminated your relationship. Let me ask you one other question. If we create a new, new global trust fund at the World Bank, as I understand it from reading Senator Risch's bill, that's what it would do, would we just be going it alone? The rest of the world, they may be seeking change at the WHO, but they're behind the WHO. So help me understand why other countries would now support a new mechanism at the World Bank. Wouldn't this just create a parallel mechanism to the World Health Organization? Uh, Senator, we just received a copy of um, the bill a couple of days ago, and I know our team is looking at that. Um, I, I don't know that that would be the case. I, in terms of 
for example, HIV AIDS. There are multiple organizations that have been created, uh, and I believe that they very much complement each other. I assume that the Senator's proposal would be in that same spirit. Uh, well, we look, for, we look forward to yeah. your, your further analysis of the bill, because that's what it seems to me. Let me close. Uh, uh, Mr. Richardson, um, I know that you've talked about uh, the generosity of the United States. I would just say that if I look at the President's proposals for global health in fiscal year 2020, which is more than a 20 percent decrease in the foreign affair budget, including a 28 percent cut to global health programs at AID and the Department of State, and similarly, the proposal for FY 2021 includes, by some estimates, a 34 percent reduction to the State Department and USAID's global health funding. And the budgets of the President for the last three years, had they been enacted, the U.S. would have, by some accounts, $7 billion less to spend on humanitarian assistance in the last three years. So to the extent that the American people have been generous, and they have, it has been because the Congress of the United States has put forward these funds. Uh, not because that the administration has proposed it. And, and I have serious concerns, which I'll wait for the second round, as it relates to the actual uh, delays in the obligation of critical humanitarian aid. We have heard from many partners that uh, up to 10 weeks in delay, uh, I don't think that there's a good reason for that, but I look forward to exploring it with you. Senator Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. This is a crisis that is really driven by and really defined by certain data points, certain metrics. Um, moving forward, if we're really going to respond properly, I think there are certain metrics that I think we have to key in on. I just kind of want to ask some questions about that. If you look at recent past viruses, different outbreaks, uh, H1N1, I guess I, I'm not a doctor, but I view that as a flu. Uh, Numbers I've seen, about 60 million Americans were affected by that, 200 million uh, globally, but it was not particularly deadly. Uh, Ebola, I think less than, all told now, about less than 50,000 people have been affected with Ebola. It's about a 40% fatality rate. MERS was, I think, about 2,500 people, uh, about a 32% uh, fatality rate. SARS, less than 10,000 people, and about a 10% uh, fatality rate. Is it safe to say, Mr. Grigsby, that early on, end of December, when this first surfaced in, in China, uh, the who was looking at this? Uh, we were, Dr. Fauci looking at this. Uh, we were hoping that uh, this type of new virus would be something, something similar on, in the order of uh, MERS and SARS, where, you know, it might be pretty deadly, but it, it wasn't going to spread that much. And I think my main point is, is the main metric there the transmission rate, and how quickly can we really obtain information on, on transmission rate in a new virus that we've never even seen before? Well, uh, Senator, I think you've hit upon the problem, and uh, I sort of with, wish Dr. Fauci were here to answer your questions. He could, he could be uh, he's a lot more knowledgeable than I am. But um, again, the point is, is that it was a novel coronavirus, and um, there are other coronaviruses that we've dealt with. Uh, SARS is an example. So that's really the only thing that you could go back to and look at. Um, but COVID-19 is not SARS. It behaves differently. Um, but you don't know that until you get into it. And frankly, they're still learning. The scientists are still learning a lot more about it and will be, I'm sure, for years. Um, and that makes it very difficult to respond to. Um, Ebola is... Uh, 
a scary thing. Uh, the, the mortality rate is, is high. Uh, it's very difficult to deal with. But at this point, there's been a lot of experience um, in dealing with that. There have been new tools that have been created, like a, a vaccine that's effective and therapeutics that, that are effective. Um, but early on, that wasn't the case. Um, but once you, once you deal with these things, uh, you become better at it, you learn more about it, and that's, that's what we're, we're in the process of doing. We've obviously now seen the economic devastation caused by you know, global and national shutdowns. Um, I think we have to take that into effect, the, the human toll of that as well. I think we're starting to understand that the devastating human toll of, of, of what's happened to our economies. Um, early on, these models, for example, the Imperial College of London, I, I read the I've read the reports, but the one that really drove so many of these shutdowns, uh, in the first report, the introductory summary estimated without mitigation, seven billion people would contract a coronavirus. Isn't that an impossibility? Um, I, I confess to you, sir, that I am not an expert on those models. Um, we have people at CDC and NIH and other places that are. We'd be happy to bring up those folks and, and talk with your staff. Um, there, there's a whole industry that deals with these with these modelings. Uh, but uh, I, think, I guess my point being is I think I think that what models we rely on to drive policy, uh, we need to take a serious right. look at that, and we need to take a serious look back at what drove so much of this economic devastation. And you know, eventually we'll find out what the the infection fatality rate is. Right now, according to the Oxford. Uh, Center for Evidence-Based Medicine, they're saying it's going to be somewhere between 0.1 and 0.41 percent. A bad seasonal flu is about 0.18. Um, we really need to, if we're moving forward in terms of you know, what our response is going to be, we need to identify these metrics that drive the type of policy, uh, first of all, to address the health situation, but also understand uh, what's happening with our economy as we employ these shutdowns. Right. Uh, you're right, Senator. And, and again, I would just go back to the fact that this is a novel coronavirus, something that had not been seen in humans before. So some of it is educated guesswork. There's no doubt about it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator, thank, thank. If, if I may just go ahead. Um, I, I think your point is exactly right, sir. And I just want to sort of reemphasize that this idea of having an early warning tracking system, we have early warning tracking systems for famines. Right, that's existing program, it's run out of USAID, it's phenomenal. But, but we don't have effective early warning systems and data tracking systems for, for, for outbreaks going into a pandemic. This is a huge vulnerability um, and a gap in the strategic system. And it's, it's not a gap currently filled by the WHO or, or any other um, system out there. And it's something I think we, we certainly need to look at. We'll take note of that. Senator Johnson, thank you for bringing this uh, into the area of the economics, it's certainly uh, something that needs to be considered as we go forward with the bill and, and the metrics that need to be developed to, uh, to look at that. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you to the witnesses. I want to follow up on Senator Johnson data and ask you some questions about data. So on January 21st, the United States and South Korea both had their first case, reported case of coronavirus. And on that day, the unemployment rate in both nations was fairly similar. It was 4% in South Korea, and it was 3.5% uh, in the United States. 
On March 3rd, we had a hearing in this room, I believe, um, with a, no a help committee hearing, not a foreign relations committee hearing, with a number of the political appointees dealing with coronavirus. And on that day, South Korea had experienced 28 deaths and the U.S. had experienced nine deaths to coronavirus. And the unemployment in both nations was also essentially similar. Today, South Korea has lost 280 people to coronavirus and the United States has lost now more than 119,000. The South Korean unemployment rate has risen to 4.8%, while the U.S. unemployment rate has risen to 13.3%. South Korea has one-sixth of the population of the United States. Their GDP is one-twelfth that of the United States. South Korean per capita income is less than two-thirds of U.S. per capita income. South Korea is every bit as much affected by any missteps of the WHO and every bit and possibly more affected by Chinese missteps because of their close proximity to China and the frequency of travel between China and South Korea. Even with vastly greater resources, the United States now has a COVID-19 death rate per 100,000 population that is 80 times higher 80 times higher than that in South Korea. I know four people who've died of coronavirus. And our economy has been devastated by this crisis in a way that South Korea's has not. In a hearing on international response, I think it's important to look at other nations and ask, what did they get right that we got so wrong? So I'd like to ask our panel, how can America and the entire world replicate the more successful strategy that South Korea or other nations, Japan, Canada, Germany, Australia, New Zealand, Vietnam, utilized as we go forward in fighting COVID-19 and preparing for the next pandemic. Uh, Senator, I, I can, I'm happy to start out. Um, I think that a lot of time, a lot of, uh, many years are going to be spent taking a look at lessons learned. Um, the World Health Organization just approved a resolution uh, to take the first steps to do the first one. Um, is that a, is that, that a good thing? You, the U.S. support that? Yes, we did. We worked. In fact, we negotiated. Uh, the EU uh, sponsored it. We worked very closely with them to ensure uh, that that language was in fact in there and was not weakened by other states that were seeking to weaken that language. Uh, and there were 140 other co-sponsors. Um, I have no doubt that in our own country there will be countless studies looking at this um, uh, and there will be lots of lessons. Can I, can I ask you, are you guys looking at this? Are you guys analyzing the experience of nations whose death tolls are dramatically less than the United States and asking yourselves, what do we need to do better right now? Not years of analysis, we're still fighting COVID-19. What do we need to do better right now? And what do we need to do better to prepare for the likelihood of future pandemics? Yes, sir. I mean, I, we have folks at the at CDC in Atlanta who do just that. Um, as you mentioned, you know, South Korea is, is a very different country than the United States. And in fact, even their laws uh, allow uh, allow the government to... to They're also some, similar to the United States uh, in a lot sure. of ways. An ally, big, messy, multi-party democracy, densely urban, but also fairly rural. 
Um, every country is different than the United sure. States in some ways, but South Korea is a country that has a lot of similarities to the United States, including a very close working relationship. Yeah. And, and I think that all of us are going to have a lot to learn from uh, the successes and failures of many countries, um, uh, including what we've done in the United States. So that's going to that's gonna be happening for years on something like this uh, that's had this massive of an impact. My, my time is close to the end, and I don't want to go over. But, Mr. Chair, I think a hearing on best practices in this committee, and maybe a combined hearing between this committee and HELP, would make a lot of sense because there are things we've done that we could teach others, but there's an awful lot of things that other nations have done that we should learn to be true to what you say. We're having this hearing to prepare for the near certainty yeah. of future epidemics. We should be trying to learn those lessons as quickly as we can. Yeah, um, you know, Senator Kane, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, the it, it seems to me, though, that um, the answer to the question is relatively straightforward, and that is how tough does the government want to be as far as locking people up so they can't spread the disease? Um, th that's, that's a debate that's probably going to be pretty heated, I would think, uh, depending upon the, uh, the culture of uh, where you come from. But, but, uh, but it, it needs to be explored. There's no question about it because... Uh, uh, the, the question is: Are you are do you do you want to go ahead? As, as Senator Johnson and others have said, pointed out that if you compare this to the flu, we go through this every year with the flu, and we take hits as a result of that. What what are we willing to do in in a pandemic like this? And I, that's a, that's a very fair discussion. And I, and I think, Mr. Chair, just to respond, South Korea is not a China or Vietnam. It's not an authoritarian state. Right. It's a democracy. And so yes. The government did some things, early testing, and then if people are sick, contact trace, isolate and treat those who are sick. But by doing that, and that was heavy government action, they didn't have to shut down the economy. Yeah. So that's Good why point. the unemployment rate went from 4% to 4.8%, where ours went from 3.5 to 13.3. So yeah, tough government action on the testing and contact tracing meant that they needed to do less dramatic government action on shutting down the economy. And, and other nations are going to have other experiences. And then we've done things that we can, uh, especially our research institutions, that we can share with others. But I just think it's just, it makes me, my skin crawl to think of first case on the same day, similar tiny number of deaths in March, and now 280 deaths in South Korea and 120,000 in the United States. And so I just, I, I know we can do better. And this committee, with a global health subcommittee, together with the HELP Committee are the places where we ought to be hashing that out, learning those lessons. Yeah, fair points uh, across the board. I, I think also uh, a, a person pointed out to me the fact that uh, how important wearing a mask is uh, in uh, social interaction. And this person also pointed out that culturally around the world, there are people that are uh, very comfortable wearing a mask. In, in some countries, uh, I was told by uh, this person who is uh, an academic as far as uh, uh, these things are concerned, that in many countries, people wear a mask if they got a cold, if they got a cough. Well, you never see that in, uh, in, in our Western civilization here, but yet in other countries, that's the case. So the, you're right. I mean, these things absolutely do need uh, a, further, uh, a further look at. Dr. Barrasso. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. 
uh, Grigsby, you know, uh, I believe the World Health Organization failed the American people, failed the world during the coronavirus crisis, refused to call out China for its disinformation campaign, lack of transparency, the cover-ups, and you made reference to, to some of this from the start. I believe the World Health Organization blindly accepted China's leaders' false reporting and uh, understated the threat of the disease. Uh, they repeatedly praised China for transparency and spread inaccurate and misleading information. January 14th, we know they pushed out a false information that there was no evidence, they said, of human-to-human -human transmission of the virus, despite clear evidence of the contrary. But it continues. Uh, just last week, the World Health Organization announced that asymptomatic spread of the coronavirus was rare, and then that made the national and the international news for a day, and then the next day they kind of walked back the claim, so had to change things, uh, lots of inconsistencies. Uh, but this isn't the first instance of the World Health Organization's failure to prevent, detect, or respond to a severe infectious disease uh, crisis. As a doctor, I always thought that the World Health Organization's mismanagement of Ebola and the delay in declaring it an international emergency cause, and I called them out publicly about it in, back in, I think it was 2014. So due to the leadership failures and the repeated mistakes, I think it's time to reconsider the role that the WHO and its leadership play. I agree with the withdrawing of the funding. Uh, reforms are needed. I agree that reforms are needed to ensure the accurate and transparent data sharing to members. So the question is, how do you do this? Another member of this committee said, what leverage do you have when you, after you've withdrawn the, fu the funding? I think you have a lot of leverage because if they say you want the funding restored, you want us to come back and re-engage, then give us the kind of credibility and, and engagement that, that is necessary. So, so I, I, fundamentally, what do you see as the problem with the, well, with the World Health Organization? Is it a lack of political commitment? Is it a lack of uh, capacity or capabilities? Why are they continuing to fail to implement needed reforms? Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, maybe if I could just talk a, a little bit about some of the reforms that we are uh, discussing with other countries, uh, and it goes beyond uh, G7 health ministers as well. Um, uh, but also, you know, as I mentioned before, this is not the first time um, We've experienced this before with the World Health Organization. Um, and in fact, in the, um, I, I made mention to SARS earlier, uh, when, when there were problems again in the West Africa Ebola crisis, um, uh, that led to, to more reforms, creation of the, um, uh, the emergencies program at WHO. Uh, the Obama administration at the time actually had to redirect funding away from WHO because WHO couldn't get its act together and even accept the money. So that went for um, good work that was going on in those countries through private organizations. So this sort of thing is not new. Um, uh, there's a big difference between the COVID-19 um, pandemic and how that's impacted the world and the West Africa Ebola crisis, which was more regionally focused. Um, but, you know, we, we have had many encouraging conversations with other countries uh, r regarding the need for reform. I mentioned uh, a few of those in my statement. Um, and, and really, you, uh, you answered Senator Menendez's question better than I did. Um, but the, the fact remains that if WHO can get its act together uh, and can make the reforms um, and can uh, prove that it has independence from China 
Uh, I'm sure there's uh, every possibility that um, um, the relationship that the United States um, is, uh, uh, has could be changed. But it's, the ball is in their court. Uh, and, and there are a number of reforms that they need to undertake. Uh, and, and we have really a remarkable amount of agreement and common ground with, with other health ministers that we're dealing with on the need for reform, notwithstanding our relationship with WHO. It's, that's, beyond, that's beside the point. Um, so the ball is in their court, and, and we hope that they will embrace these uh, reform proposals. Can I ask about the development of a vaccine? Um, can, can you please discuss the, the, the steps, uh, Mr. Grigsby, that the administration is taking to engage with our global partners to ensure that the vaccine can be developed and distributed as quickly as possible? Um, well, uh, yes, sir. You know, we have our own um, projects that are going on, Operation Warp Speed, and we're investing a lot of uh, resources in that. There are other uh, efforts going on globally. Um, we have collaborations and conversations um, and, and share lessons learned and uh, provide technical assistance to really all of these efforts. Uh, we're rooting for all of the efforts. We're going to need more than one vaccine. We're going to need more than one company uh, because because we're going to really need uh, vaccine uh, vaccinations for everybody on Earth, ideally, and easy access to that. Um, so there, there are a lot of different uh, things in play. Uh, we have folks that their job is to work on these. I'm happy to, to bring up some folks, uh, technical experts and scientists, uh, who could speak with, with you and your staff. Uh, we're happy to do that anytime. But, but there are a number of initiatives going on, and uh, our department and, and the White House as well, that they're in discussions with, I'm, I'm assuming, all of them. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Booker. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Um, it goes without saying this uh, pandemic has hit the United States of America uh, pretty significantly. And within that context, my state of New Jersey has seen uh, the worst of this uh, pandemic and the lives lost, uh, the families facing devastating grief, and the struggles that we've seen have been a legion. I'm grateful that it was already said in this committee that we have a serious problem with uh, at a time that People were calling into question China's secrecy. We have a president that was praising China. At the time, people were demanding uh, transparency from China. This president was coddling them and encouraging them in numerous public statements, in numerous tweets. Uh, and we were failing, as people in New Jersey were dying, we were failing to hold them to account for the challenges that were before them. And so I continue to be concerned about our policies uh, regarding China and uh, that go beyond tough talk, but to really working to get results. According to reporting, China appears during the, this crisis to have nationalized control of domestic production and international distribution of critical uh, personal protective equipment. In, near, in early 2020, in response to this crisis, including that of the U.S. companies, uh, um, uh, such as 3M, which produce PPE. This is a significant challenge. Under their action of nationalizing their control, China required factories that make masks on behalf of American companies in China to produce masks for its own domestic use. Now, China is currently exporting more masks, and these exports seem to relate to political calculations 
with the U.S. receiving less priority than other markets. China's mask diplomacy, or China's distribution of masks and medical equipment in order to curry favor, has been widely reported. How, I'd like to really know, how is China, in your perspective, and maybe address this to Grisby and Richardson, uh, how is China prioritizing uh, uh, their exports of PPE, and how is the U.S., in your view, uh, benefiting or to the detriment of our country? And really, the entire world saw the images of our healthcare professionals working without adequate PPE while we waited for China to release the supplies of PPE. What have we learned as a nation uh, through the process in the event that another surge of PPE, uh, another surge of the coronavirus hits? and we find ourselves with heightened demands and needs for PPE. Uh, I'm very concerned that this problem still is ongoing and that the Chinese policies are still working at a detriment, at a significant detriment, uh, to the United States of America, and we're not doing enough. So I'd, I'd like a response uh, from uh, Mr. Grisby and Mr. Richardson, if possible. Uh, thank you, Senator. I think your comments are spot on, and I don't know that there are many silver linings to this terrible crisis, but I think one of them is going to be, I can assure you, um, a re-examination of the supply chains. Um, I, I, I believe that everything you mentioned is true uh, in terms of that, and um, uh, there are, I can just assure you, this is not my office that does this, but there are a lot of people, not only in HHS, but in across our government, working very hard specifically on the supply chain issue. It is a big issue, and thank you for raising that. Thank you, Mr. Griffin. Mr. Richardson? Yeah, thank you, Senator. I, I totally agree with you, and I agree with Garrett. Um, when you look at China, and I, I wouldn't just, just look at it in the context of COVID, but if you look at their approach to foreign assistance generally, um, they have a really mercantilistic, um, very uh, strategic approach to all of the what they do. They're, they're looking at strategic medical, me, uh, mineral rights. They're looking at strategic ports. Uh, they're looking at you know, bribing officials in order to, to get their companies access to things. Um, that's really the Chinese approach to foreign assistance writ large. And I think it does set up a really great dichotomy between you know, if you want to go uh, with China and, and, and accept that type of assistance, you're, you're gonna go backsliding on your governance and, and your transparency, and it's not ultimately going to be the most sex successful for any of our, of our partners. I think what the U.S. really offers with, with, our, multi, or with our partners, donor, our donor partners, offers really a different solution of, of transparency, no strings attached assistance, uh, and those types of things. It, it's, a critical, it's a critical issue. So I, I'm grateful, and I do not think we're, we're sounding the alarm enough. We see the authoritarian regime of China working against our country from currency manipulation to corporate espionage and stealing uh, secrets. We've seen this behavior consistently uh, in how they deal with foreign relations. But now in the nature of a pandemic, it is chilling to see uh, that their actions and what they are doing uh, is uh, putting lives in our country at risk uh, in the past, right now, and uh, especially within, within uh, uh, the potential for a second wave. I'm grateful you are echoing, uh, Mr. Grisby, what I've been saying in this committee, in the Small Business Committee, is the supply chain issues are national security issues. And, and we need to be acting with bolder, uh, uh, far greater action to protect our nation from this menace 
that seems to be the Chinese intention to undermine uh, our safety, our, our health, and our well-being. I want to ask very quickly uh, uh, that uh, about wet markets because I have great partnerships across the aisle. Uh, China CDC announced it found COVID-19 in samples collected uh, in a wet market in Wuhan, China in January. There is a new outbreak right now in, in Beijing, but China yet again uh, in this outbreak, we see that, that it is still linking a lot of the challenges to wet markets. These live wildlife markets were also linked to the 2003 SARS outbreak. Uh, scientists studying zoonotic uh, diseases, uh, diseases that jump between animals and humans, have pointed to the close proximity, pro prox proximity of shoppers, vendors uh, in these markets as they're, they're being prime locations for uh, the spread of these pathogens. And so we know from SARS, which I mentioned, Ebola, uh, monkeypox, COVID-19, um, MERS, and more jump from animals to humans. It is clear that wildlife markets that sell wildlife animals for human consumptions need to be shut down. Uh, Senator Graham and I sent a letter to the heads of international organizations urging them to engage in efforts to shut down these markets. And so very quickly, and then I'll, I'll stop, uh, at, uh, and, and love to ask uh, this question uh, to Milligan and Richardson, um, is how should the U.S. work through international organizations and international wildlife community to increase the awareness of this risk um, and really to begin to take real measures to shut down and ban wildlife markets uh, uh, so that we do not see this challenge again. I'm grateful to be working with Senator Cornyn, Senator Graham, and others on legislation but uh, to me, this has got to be an international priority, and I would love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, uh, thank you, Senator. I appreciate those comments. Um, State and USAID have really robust, robust programs when it comes to uh, preventing wildlife trafficking, uh, environmental um, uh, programs. And we have a fairly broad reach, although a lot of the countries that are the greatest offenders, like China, we, we don't have a lot of those types of programs in some of these countries. So I do think we need to expand, um, not just in the, the, the development piece that Chris can certainly will, will have better insight in, uh, but on the diplomatic side. I think that we've got to do a one-two punch here, um, but working together, I think it can, we can make a real progress. But Chris? Thank you. And I think what this shows is that these issues are all interrelated. You can't look at just a simple health focus. It's all interrelated. We have a tremendous opportunity now to build more commitment behind, behind uh, preventing wildlife trafficking by, re by actually messaging on CITES and by talking to many of the countries that enable this to happen about the consequences and, and the, the downstream effects. So this is a tremendous opportunity. Um, and going back to the whole sanitation issue that you raised up, we are prioritizing many of our investments in water and sanitation and hygiene, particularly for that reason, you know that we can prevent the spread of this disease as it goes forward. So, uh, Senator Booker, your, your point is well taken that these issues are all quite interrelated, but we have an important uh, ability now to message strongly and show these connections, which can help have a broader impact on these important issues such as county wildlife trafficking. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Senator Booker, for raising the supply chain issue. That's certainly something that's uh, critical. Um, it, this ties in a little bit with what Senator uh, Kane was saying, and that is that uh, one of the things that South Korea did 
uh, it, it had a, a, an all-of-government approach to this thing, and they shut down their supply chain out. Uh, they hung on to everything that they had, and uh, what, what's happened in this is there's been a real underscoring of the weaknesses that we have as a result of a lot of our manufacturing going overseas. And I think there's, there, there's some, some of that manufacturing that's national security, and certainly a health challenge is a national security issue like anything else. I, I have no doubt we're going to be looking at that uh, as we go forward. So thank you uh, for that. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Um, in response uh, to a question about global vaccine efforts, uh, Mr. Griggs, we said that we're rooting for these efforts. And I'll maybe direct this question to Mr. Richardson because it probably matters more what the Secretary of State thinks about this than the head of the CDC. Um, why should we just be rooting for these global vaccine efforts? Um, in fact, we could be part of these global vaccine efforts. In particular, there is one that is probably the most promising. It's CEPI, uh, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. Um, all our allies are a part of it. It's uh, frankly doing work as we speak with U.S. companies. Uh, the legislation that Senator Risch and I have would authorize the United States to become a partner uh, with CEPI. And, put money behind that effort. So what's the administration's specific position uh, on the wisdom of joining uh, this particular global vaccine effort? It just seems to be a lot smarter for us to be at the table. So if CEPI is the one that produces a vaccine, that we have something to say about where that vaccine goes and who gets it first. Yeah, I appreciate that, that Senator. Um, CEPI plays an important role, certainly. Uh, Gavi is also plays a, an essential role. Um, uh, the administration just made the largest uh, pledge ever for an American government to, to Gavi of $1.6 billion. Um, so I think our commitment to uh, the international effort for, for vaccines is, is, pretty, is pretty strong. I, I would say that if, if you look at what we have, have done, and a lot of this actually is on HHS side, um, but four and a half billion dollars of we've invested through BARDA. Um, we, we've uh, allocated 350 million dollars for vaccine efforts, 1.8 billion dollars for uh, rapid acceleration of diagnostics. I think there is a lot of work that has um, already been happening in the U.S. Am I going to say that we shouldn't uh, coordinate more closely with with our partners and allies around the world? Well, of course we should. That's a that's a great common sense approach. I, I will say, and, and I don't know if your questions was leading to the EU conference um, before, um, but the U.S. has has invested private sector and and public dollars over 12 billion dollars so far into vaccine development and therapy. I, I, don't, I, I don't deny yeah. we're spending a lot of money on vaccines. My question is not whether we are spending enough money, it's whether we are better off hedging our bets and making sure that we are not only doing that domestically, but we are also joining these international efforts. I hope that the administration would be open to um, a bipartisan congressional legislation uh, pushing us towards uh, joining CEPI. I think there is happy, bipartisan happy support here. Um, uh, Mr. Uh, Grigsby, I did want to turn back to this question of the WHO. I mean, I, I do think it's pretty stunning to hear from the administration that the problem early on was that the WHO was giving cover 
for China to withhold information about the vaccine. And Senator Menendez covered this. Um, and so we don't need to belabor the point. But it was not that the president was simply saying nice things about China early on. On 40 different occasions, up to and including the month of April, the president of the United States was the primary global cheerleader for the Chinese response to COVID. He went out of his way over and over and over again to say great things about the Chinese response. Here he is on February 7th. This is, this is far after we all recognized that China was withholding information. He gets a direct question at a gaggle. Are you concerned that China is covering up for the full extent of coronavirus? February 7th, he has an opportunity right here to say, yes, I'm concerned about it. They need to give us information. His answer is no. China is working very hard. And I've got 20 pages of this from the president. And so it just belies reality to suggest that the problem was the WHO covering up China's response. The president of the WHO is not more powerful than the president of the United States, and we all need to acknowledge that. My question to you is this. The idea that we're going to try to affect WHO reform through the G7 is a new one. Can we at least just stipulate for the time being that it is harder for the United States to impact reform of the WHO if we are not a part of it rather than a part of it. It might just be good for us to stipulate that. Whether or not you're going to try to pursue reform through the G7 or not, can we at least stipulate that it's more difficult for us to get the WHO to reform if we have withdrawn from it? Uh, thank you, Senator. I think as Senator Menendez or, or, or uh, another senator had mentioned, um, WHO is a member state institution. Our conversations with the G7 are important because this really represents um, the most significant and influential donors to the World Health Organization. Um, I would say that if, the, that if WHO and other countries, and other countries uh, do not want to see the, the United States leave WHO, there's no doubt about that. Um, it, it's important for WHO to embrace these reforms and uh, at the appropriate governing bodies meeting for member states to take these reforms up and approve them. There's one country that is desperate for the United States to leave the WHO, and that's China. They are going to fill this vacuum. They are going to put in the money that we uh, have withdrawn. And even if we try to rejoin in 2021, it's going to be under fundamentally different terms because China will be much more influential because of our even temporary absence uh, from it. And any other construction of reality um, is just putting the United States in a very, very dangerous position. Well, Thank you, Mr. I, Chairman. I guess I would say to that, sir, that um, the U.S. has been the most generous donor to WHO really since the beginning. Uh, it's been remarkable, um, the increase in China's influence within WHO really over a long period of time. That's been with the United States in WHO and being the most generous contributor to WHO. So the president made, made a bold decision. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, personally, I hope that it, will, that it will get the attention of the leadership of the World Health Organization and that the scenario you just described will not come about. That's at least my hope. I, and I just finally note, we, we were continuing to fund the WHO for the last three years, but we left our seat on the board vacant 
So it doesn't take a lot of imagination to figure out why China was able to get more influence if we were sending money but not sending anybody to sit on the governing board. Uh, so we invited, listen, I'm not defending the fact that WHO has gotten closer to China, but we essentially invited the Chinese to step in and fill a, a, the, the shoes of the United States, given the fact that we weren't sitting on that governing board. Uh, Senator, I actually have something to do with that, so I, I would like to respond to that. I, I'm actually the alternate board member, and I, I'm sure I don't do as near, nearly as good a job as a Senate-confirmed person, but that seat was not vacant, I assure you. And in fact, Ambassador Bremberg or his predecessor, uh, the ambassador in Geneva, they're always there to fill that seat. And uh, Dr. Joua, who's the Assistant Secretary of Health, uh, he was actually nominated, I think it was 2017. So he was nominated a long time ago. Um, and we sure do wish we could have had uh, him uh, confirmed sooner, but he was just confirmed a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he, was, he was nominated last year and had to be re-nominated again this year. All right. Well, I, I, I won't get into an argument over whether it is more effective to have Senate-confirmed positions or not. I would obviously argue that it is. Um, I'm well over my time. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Um, Mr. Grigsby, I can tell you that I've got contacts with the WHO, and your suggestion that uh, our talk of withdrawing and withdrawing funds might get their attention I can assure you it has gotten their attention. It's probably been your experience too, but it's uh, clearly my experience. So uh, in, in any event, we want to look forward as opposed to backward, and uh, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But before we do that, Senator Cardin. Well, I hope I'm looking forward. Uh, Mr. Chairman, thank you very much for uh, holding this hearing. Let me thank all of our witnesses for their service to our country. On global challenges, uh, U.S. leadership is indispensable. If we're going to have the type of outcome that's in the interest of the United States and our security interests, and this committee knows that best, so that's why I was very pleased to see that we're holding this hearing. It's through U.S. leadership that we have a safer world, a more democratic world, and a healthier world. So many of us are very concerned as to how the United States responded to this global pandemic. We've seen inconsistent information coming out from the White House, and that's being kind to the president on a lot of the things that he has done in regards to this pandemic. We have not seen the type of preparation or response to the pandemic that would be used as a model for the world to respond. And I think Senator Kane pointed out that pretty clearly in his questioning. This is not an isolated example of the Trump administration in regards to global affairs. I could point to the immigration policy of this country, and I was very proud that the Supreme Court ruled the president's actions in trying to end the DACA program was, in their words, arbitrary and capricious. But we also could talk about the president's trade agenda that initially put us at odds with our trading partners, our traditional trading partners, rather than trying to isolate China, or the United States pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement, the only country in the world, basically, to pull away from that, and now the pandemic. So my question starts off with the effectiveness of U.S. global leadership on this pandemic. When other countries look at what's being done here in the United States, how much influence do we really have 
in the behavior of other countries. Because they look at what's happening in the United States, they see the president holding a political rally, bringing lots of people together against the advice of the public health officials. So how can we complain what's going on in other countries? And my question is going to deal specifically with some of our largest countries in our hemisphere who have at least publicly reported that their cases of COVID are, are very much underreported, and they have not taken the steps that public health officials believe is necessary in order to contain the spread of COVID-19. This is our hemisphere, and we know this is a global pandemic. How much influence do we really have, and how much of concern are we what's happening in our own hemisphere with other countries that are underreporting COVID-19 and have not taken the steps that public health officials believe are necessary in order to contain this virus? Yeah, Senator, I can, I can start um, that. I appreciate that question. Uh, you know, we're really truly committed to the Western Hemisphere. I think the I think we just uh, announced another 250 million dollars uh, to be turned on for the Northern Triangle countries. Um, our commitment to Colombia is unprecedented. Uh, Mexico. Uh, I'm trying to limit this to COVID-19, if sure. I can. Yeah. And, and you might want to also point out the Congress appropriated almost two billion dollars of aid to deal with COVID-19. Can you tell me how much of that money has actually been spent and where it's been spent? We can, we can go and look exactly at the obligations by country. Not obligations. How much has been spent? That, that's, that's how much has uh, been spent. spent. Yeah, so can you give me a range of, of that $2 billion, how much has been spent? Yeah, so, so Congress has appropriated $1.6 billion for state and aid, so I can speak to that piece. We've committed about $1.3 billion. Of that, we've committed almost $200 million for the Western Hemisphere. And you say committed. The money is actually out. It's being spent. The, the, we've, we've identified which projects. I understand you identified. How much of that has actually been yep. actually spent? So it gets down to the, 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 the obligation rates, which uh, USAID actually does their own obligations. I'll turn to Chris to answer specifically. But in general, we've, we've obligated... But almost over 500. I'm not interested. I want to know how much has been spent. That's this is a national. This is a global emergency. Right. So time so is critical. Yeah. How much has been has actually been spent? So obligation equals spending. It's when we actually hand over the money to the implementing partner to to do the work. And so that's the 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 big picture. And then I could turn it over to Chris if he has more details on specifically for Western Hemisphere what the obligation rate is. I, I will say you know one thing. So there so each individual bureau and an agency handles their own obligations rate. So I can speak for the State Department side. Uh, State Department has obligated every dollar um, that we've identified that we want to spend on COVID. So, so that's, that's happening. Um, aid has a different um, mechanisms and different approach to this. And so I can let Chris sort of elaborate. Um, but I think, well, let me, just, let me just do that. Chris, if you want to have this conversation. Thank you, Senator. The, uh, the easy answer from our perspective is that USAID has put over a billion dollars into the hands of people overseas to respond to the COVID-19. That includes 
the portion of the supplemental that we are still continuing to put in people's hands. How much of the supplemental has been spent? More than 50%, sir, of the portion that we control. But and why hasn't all of it been allocated? We've been allocating in tranches because the, the virus moves very quickly. And if we, what we need to do is see where the virus is going and then move ahead of it and prepare and learn as we go. Do you need more money? Are you going to be requesting more money? Uh, we are busy obligating the money that we have, uh, and we're very, very thankful for the generosity of Congress in, in this. Uh, we are not through this pandemic, and we are learning a lot. Uh, one of the things I'm most concerned about, sir, uh, are the secondary and, and tertiary impacts. We're seeing a big rise in food insecurity. We're seeing a democratic backsliding. We see 1.1 billion children out of school. We're alarmed about gender-based violence. So there is a whole set of secondary and tertiary impacts that we will have to consider going forward, sir. I just would ask if you would keep our committee informed as the money is actually spent uh, and the request for additional funds as you see the needs. Yes, sir. No, absolutely, Senator. And just to pick up on, on what Chris, Chris mentioned, we have $35 billion that's being spent every year on, on foreign assistance, you know, mu much of it going to Western Hemisphere. We want to make sure that every dollar is spent in a COVID-sensitive way, right? How do we make sure that our, our gender-based violence programming, our, our education programming, our health programming takes into a, effect of what's, ha what's happening with the virus right there, right, right then? And so it's a, it's a really important conversation. So it's not just, as Chris mentioned, it's not just the supplemental. Uh, we're really trying to bear, bring to bear all of our foreign assistance in order to help countries overcome this virus. Thank you. Uh, let me follow up on uh, Senator Cardin's question. On the 50% of the money, the supplemental money that's been put out, is that it, has that been spent prime on the primary effects of COVID or is some of it spent on the secondary and tertiary uh, effects that you've quite properly and, and considerately? Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a mix. Um, so Congress has appropriated uh, a certain amount of money for our economic support fund uh, which is really looking at that tertiary and secondary impacts. We also primarily, most of our, our resources are coming in the form of both global health and humanitarian, which do focus more, more primarily on the actual uh, virus and providing critical medical supplies, training healthcare workers, uh, uh, looking at best practices, those types of things. Thank you so much. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to our panelists. I'd like to go back to China. There's been a lot of discussion about China and their role in the hearing today. We've seen a concerted effort from China to counter any negative narrative that may develop in the international media and within countries on China's role in the pandemic. And I would say, given the discussion this morning, they've been pretty successful. They've demonstrated a clear willingness to use their resources, including the manufacturing of personal protective equipment, to realign national sentiments in countries that may otherwise be inclined to critically examine China's response to the coronavirus. Um, in fact, the Center for Strategic and International Studies released a report earlier this month that surveyed political elites across Southeast Asia and found that China is gaining ground on political influence and far outstrips the U.S. on economic influence in that region. So I have two questions for you, really. One is, 
How does the lack of U.S. leadership on the pandemic response create a vacuum that allows China to better develop that narrative where they are the provider um, helping countries with needed resources and expertise? And secondly, how does the pandemic contribute to this dynamic in Southeast Asia in a way that um, has a negative impact on the United States and our role? Yeah, I I'm happy to have whoever wants to answer it. I, I, can, I can start and then I can, I can pass it on. I, I mean, I just totally agree with your premise of your question. I mean, the, the, the reality is China has used this pandemic to advance their strategic interests around the world. As, as I mentioned earlier, it does need to be seen in the context of, the larger, of their larger efforts. Um, I think we have a lot of work to do, especially on the public, public diplomacy side, to want to counter misinformation, and, and, and our Global Engagement Center does a great job of, of doing that. Well, let me, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, but let me just ask you, why do you think that is? Why have we been slow? Has it been um, some of the statements that were read from the president that suggests that we have been slow to recognize what was happening in China? Uh, no, actually, I think, I think what you're seeing is that the United States has outspent China time and time again, both in its everyday foreign assistance, right? China spends 400 million or so on foreign assistance and we're at 35 billion. I mean, they are just not a significant player when it comes to what we would consider to be effective foreign assistance. They spend all of their resources trying to build up strategic ports and to engage in bribery and other aspects. And so I think it's, it's, a, it's an asymmetrical challenge from a development perspective, and we need to develop asymmetrical responses accordingly. And we, Congress has been, was really smart um, in last year's appropriations bill. They, they established what's called the Countering China Incentive Fund. And we're going to be spending the $300 million as a, through a bottom-up process trying to develop best practices across the world to say, how can we effectively counter China in, in, in Djibouti and in Malawi and, and in um, El Salvador? This is not a Southeast Asia problem, as you know. China's influence has dramatically shifted, and, and the next battlefield is Africa and, and Western Hemisphere, and we want to position ourselves in order to be able to be one, the, the partner of choice always, um, and, and two, remind people of the everyday commitment we have been making to countries over the past 40 years. We've been there, we've stood with countries through thick and thin. Um, our, our, as I said, we've invested $500 billion just over the past 20 years. I, well, I agree with that, but a lot of that $500 billion has not been in humanitarian and economic development aid. It's is it? When you are counting that $500 billion, are you not counting the military aid in that as well? Yeah, so about 25%, about so the, the way that our budgets work, about 25% of our foreign assistance is security assistance, and that's not just military, that's also law enforcement right. and those types of things. 25% so, is global health, 25% is humanitarian, and 25% is everything else. So given that, why do you think we have not been more successful, and China has been successful. I, I would like to, um, I've been working in development for 30 years, and most of that time I've been overseas, and yes, we've seen the uh, quick increase in Chinese influence. But we're also seeing that China is not now as successful in many terms. There's a lot of buyer's remorse 
and, and more uh, understanding that Chinese investments come with strings attached. The supplemental that we are implementing has a very important public diplomacy side that really shows American leadership. And countries overseas are turning to us and to our embassies for leadership on this issue. And so can I, I'm sorry to interrupt again, but I'm out of time and I just wanna get an answer to the, what has the pandemic done to allow China to increase its influence as opposed to our reaction globally to the pandemic, which does not seem to have produced a similar response to American aid? Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a tough question, to obviously, uh, to, to answer. And, and we can't, we'd have to go country by country to really determine every country is unique in, in how they approach it and how they think about Chinese assistance. Most countries are, are willing to accept um, face masks or whatever from, from China, but to Chris's point, they often then go around to us and say, hey, is this financing deal from China any good? Um, that we, we're the trusted partner in choice, even though we've, we've seen China really accelerate. But if you look at their investments, even in COVID versus what the U.S. has invested, it, it, it pales in comparison. Um, uh, I think they're just really focused on getting those, those headlines. Well, let me just point out that the state of New Hampshire was able to get personal protective equipment from China when we couldn't get it from the United States or from FEMA. So I think we need to examine what's happening there and what we could be doing better in order to address the fallout from the pandemic. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Um, now, the tough questions. Uh, if you guys were sitting here, each of you, one at a time, what, what would you do to construct uh, uh, a, syst uh, a system for the future? Would it be to rehabilitate WHO? to reform WHO, to create a new division of WHO, to restructure its management? Uh, would it be to create a, a new international agency? Would it be to uh, uh, use something else like CDC or what have you to uh, uh, construct a system as we go forward? I wanna say that Senator Menendez raised a very legitimate question about uh, parallel spending in, a, in another organization. And I think the last thing anybody here wants to do is to create more bureaucracy as opposed to an effective, nimble uh, response to this in the future. And uh, so uh, give me your thoughts. I guess we'll go right down the line. Mr. Richardson, you're up. Well, thank you, Chairman. Um, you know, whenever you deal with these challenges, I always want to make sure we're thinking about what problem we're trying to solve and what results. Um, that, that, that we're looking for. The, the solution and the specifics about the solution will, will naturally come, and, and that's through the legislative process. Um, the administration has yet to finalize its, its own proposal in this, in this space, um, but, but let me say that a, a couple things. You know, first and foremost, having a, a really clear leadership and coordination function is, is, is essential. And as I said, coordination doesn't mean control. It means empowerment. Um, we shouldn't be you know, the State Department should not be doing global health programming. That would be a terrible duplication of efforts um, and really takes away from what CDC and USAID does. But the State Department also has global reach. It has embassies in, in nearly every country in the world, um, and it has a natural coordination function that is, that is essential. Um, the other gaps into the, the system that we've seen 
uh, in both the domestic and the international systems um, is data tracking, um, is a built-in accountability. How do we create true accountability into the international system to hold countries accountable for not meeting minimum standards? How do we make sure that we are encouraging countries to use their own resources in a coordinated and systematic way that allows us to better share data, to be able to create early warning systems? And, and how do we bring the very best of our private sector and the US government to, to work together? So those are a couple thoughts. Those are all good questions, but not much of an answer. Uh, what, who, when the fire alarm goes off, who responds? The, the State Department is the functional lead uh, for foreign policy for the United States. How about uh, for the C world? Uh, for the world, sorry. Uh, the the uh, CDC is responsible for, for outbreaks or for public health emergencies. USAID leads on complex crises. So each one of us has our natural roles and responsibilities. And so I would guess I would encourage us how we can pull all of our expertise together in order to solve the problem. So the, the criticism has been made both in this committee here and, and for a long time, the WHO fell down on the job when it was obvious that there was something developing. Should they be the ones to undertake this in a fast-moving pandemic like this, or should there be a different agency that does that, that shines light on it, that attacks it, yeah. goes and gets it? Who should do that? I, I appreciate that. I, I don't think that, look, the WHO has failed the world on multiple occasions. The last administration saw the same thing with the Ebola crisis. We've now seen this with the, with the COVID crisis. You know, when this problem has been brought to us before, this is not the first time we've had to think about, can the WHO do HIV AIDS response, for instance? I think the world said, no, it, it, it does what it does, but it's not going to be nimble, dynamic, uh, respect burden sharing, bring in private sector actors and able to respond appropriately with the highest levels of accountability. So last time the US led to create the, the Global Fund in order to do something on the HIV AIDS side. Um, and so I think that, that looking at where are the strategic gaps in the multilateral space and how the US can lead uh, with our friends and partners and, and folks around the world in order to strategically fill those gaps, that will be an essential part of that conversation. So is a global fund a model? I think the global fund is a tremendous model. I think Gavi is also a tremendous model. I think there's a lot of things to be learned from, from lots of different options out there. Um, I think the really key here is, is having worldwide reach, focusing on burden sharing. You know, right now the U.S. spends uh, Forty percent of the world's uh, global public health work uh, comes from the American people. We, you know, we're, we don't want to back away from that. But as we take on this new challenge, we really need to to search in both private sector and other donors into this space. And both the Global Fund and Gavi have tremendous models about how to do that well. You agree, Mr. Milligan? Thank you, Senator. When I think about the future, I think we need to think about how do we respond to the next pandemic? And how do we prevent, also as well, an epidemic from becoming a pandemic? And then how do we structure ourselves to effectively engage in that effort? We know that in order to respond, we have to maintain a nimble and effective 
uh, means to do so. We can't have an overarching top-down bureaucratic bureaucracy in, engaging in that. We've learned that the hard way. And we need to empower our people in the field at the country team level, because that's where a lot of the true coordination and expertise comes, comes due. In order do, you, do, you agree with, uh, do you agree with Mr. Richardson that the vehicle, uh, good models for the vehicle are the Global Fund and, uh, and Gavi? Uh, that depends, sir, because it's a model for what? Uh, I don't mean to be cheeky, but a model. No, no, for, no, I, I, we're fair looking, enough. Preventing is very different than responding, and those are different skill sets and different, and different attributes. So when I consider about preventing, we know that a pandemic is not really a health crisis. It's a governance crisis. We know where we have epidemics today. We have them because people, because of state fragility. Where is Ebola today, Eastern Congo? Why does polio still exist where it exists today? It exists in fragile states like parts of Pakistan and, and, South, and South Sudan. So many times an epidemic is really a governance crisis masquerading as a health crisis. And we need to, need to make sure that we have an integrated approach uh, Senator Booker talked about the link between wildlife trafficking and zoonotic crossovers. So when we look about preventing, there's a level of coordination that needs to take place. We can't have a stove-piped uh, health alone approach that creates another layer of bureaucracy. It has to be something that brings everything together. When we look at the response side, we have to maintain our nimbleness and our ability to actually engage in that international effort at multiple levels. And what, what uh, agency or what system, what, uh, what do you recommend in that regard? Again, is the global, for that part, when the fire alarm goes off and the fire department goes, who's the fire department? Correct. Um, it's not we don't really have a, the Global Fund or the Gavi set up to be the fire department. The Global Fund is responding to slow-moving epidemics. Not so is there, is there no model then that exists for the fire department? The only model we currently have is the one that we're suggesting needs to be reformed. Currently, when there's a humanitarian assistance crisis, and I've led many of our interactions in them, we work through the UN cluster system. The UN actually sets and organizes the international parts together. It works well on a, for a regional stage, but now we, we don't have a model for the pandemic stage. But we have principles that we need to incorporate. Flexibility, responsiveness, integrated approach, and the one that brings the U.S. government core capabilities that we share at this table into that together. Mr. Grigsby. Yes, sir, thank you. Um, I, I think Jim and Chris have stated it quite well. Uh, and I just want to thank uh, Jim and uh, colleagues at U.S. Agency for International Development. We've worked very closely with them uh, in the development of these, of these ideas. Uh, we appreciate that. Um, we do support uh, the coordinator concept uh, being in a non-implementing agency. Uh, I, I would just point out that most of what we're talking about is sort of foreign assistance related. Um, CDC, which is, would be the agency in HHS that would have uh, the most to do in this area, it's not a foreign assistance agency. It really is a technical, uh, technical assistance agency. It, it, it operates uh, differently than USAID, and in fact, in different places. It does have 50 or 60 offices uh, in developing countries, but it actually operates in every country on Earth. So rich countries, poor countries, it has all sorts of collaborations. Um, um, but we- uh, are, are you suggesting CDC is the uh, model for the fire department? 
Uh, no, not necessarily. It just depends on, on what kind of fire that the trucks are going out to address, I guess. I mean, CDC uh, is on point when it comes to uh, the pandemics uh, and disease outbreaks. There's no doubt about that. It oftentimes works very closely with U.S. Agency for International Development, particularly in a case in, in uh, Eastern DRC is a great example. Uh, where there is a, a disease outbreak and it's happening uh, in a part of the world uh, where there's a war going on and many other problems and it's by definition a complex emergency. So we work hand in glove uh, with USAID on that. So it, I don't know that there's a one size fits all uh, sort of answer, it's kind of case by case, but um, yeah. Well, thanks. I, um, I was hoping to get a clearer answer uh, to the question of who's the fire department, because that's what we're trying to do here. I, I, I get all the moving parts, I understand that, but uh, it seems to me that if uh, there was a telephone number that somebody could call and uh, say, come and put out the fire, we want that agency. And uh, right now, uh, what, we, what you're suggesting is we give them a list of phone numbers to call, and I'm not sure that that responds. Yeah. But well, Senator, if I could just be, be very clear, there already is a number that countries call when they have a problem. Yeah. It's our ambassador. Um, and, and that's really where our worldwide reach is really essential. And then our, our ambassadors and, and chiefs of mission around the world, they naturally lean on the technical expertise depending on the challenge, right? And I think, I think this, as we start thinking about what the next pandemic looks like, is it fast moving? Is it slow moving? Does it hit the developing world? Does it hit the high income countries? How does it work? What are the responses that we need to do? We, we just don't know. And so making sure that we have true coordination that can pull the right levers at the right time in order to get to results, I think is essential. But I certainly wouldn't want to, to, um, uh, to move away from the fact that we do have uh, worldwide reach today. People know who to call, um, and that's our, our chief of mission um, uh, with, at the State Department. Um, and we'd want to just look to, to strengthen that capacity. And if I could add briefly to that, I, I would say that the, uh, our ambassadors, they are the, the mayors, and the firemen is the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, which mobilizes rapidly through darts around the world. We're currently responding to very, very complex humanitarian assistance all around the world and complex emergencies. So from our U.S. point of view, we have firemen. But I think your question, sir, was is, should there be an, and will there be an international fire person? That's what we're looking for. Senator Keene, anything for the good of the order? Just to follow up, Mr. Chair, on your comment and then one additional question. Um, I'll put myself firmly in the camp on this and that I think we ought to stay in the WHO and use our leverage to push reforms. Um, an enormously frustrating organization, like every international organization. The U.S. chose not, the, the Senate actually chose not to put the U.S. into the League of Nations when President Wilson urged after World War I that we do so, and the organization was ineffective. It was more ineffective because the U.S. wasn't involved, but it was interesting, during the 1930s, long before World War II, FDR could see the League of Nations collapse coming and, and basically said it's been ineffective, but if it collapses, we're going to have to recreate it. The world needs it. And started planning for a UN. Those plans were delayed by World War II, but eventually Presidents Roosevelt and then Truman carried forward on it, recognizing the frustrations. 
The U.S. pulled out of the U.N. Human Rights Council for some very legitimate reasons, a history of anti-Israel bias, and also a, a, a more broad history of hypocrisy. The member nations you know, were fulminating about human rights and doing bad things. But what's happened as a result of us pulling out? Has, has, has it gotten better for Israel? No. And, and things that the U.S. advocated on the Council that did become global priorities, for example, fighting against discrimination against LGBTQ people, that wouldn't have been part of the global human rights agenda if it weren't for the United States. Those have gone unaddressed or sort of dormant with the U.S. not there. I think these organizations are enormously frustrating. But I think it always goes worse for the world if the U.S. isn't involved. And I think it generally goes worse for us as well. And so I, I, I like the president, whether it's with NATO or the WHO, lean on them, demand more accountability, more strings have to be attached. But it just goes worse for the world if we're not there. We have, I'm so confident that the U.S. always has such a value add to any organization that when we back away from it, A, they lose the expertise that we uniquely have, and then worse actors elevate their profile in ways that's not good for us or anyone else. Here's the question I want to ask you quickly, and it follows up on a conversation I think you were having with Senator Cardin. There's a New York Times piece in the last week about on-the-ground agencies feeling frustrated about the slow pace of the delivery of the March CARES Act and other money, this $1.6 billion, out into the field. And you've given us basically an awful lot of it has been committed. A big chunk of it has been obligated. And I just want to understand this and maybe we'll follow up in writing, but obligation means you put it in the hands of the organization. You know, the, the U.S. is writing a check to an organization. Is that the same thing as getting to the field? Might some of the complaints of these ground level, you know, church world services, um, save the children, uh, world vision, might their complaints be the U.S. has written a check to somebody, but there's a middleman problem and it's not getting down to the ground yet? because this was a recent piece in the New York Times with groups named that were really frustrated. What's the source of their frustration? How can we solve it? Um, Senator, I, I think that their source of their frustration is that they want to act as quickly as, as we want them to act as well. Um, without getting very bureaucratic, our different accounts have different abilities to spend money. We hear these concerns from these NGOs are important partners. Um, with the humanitarian assistance funding that we have, as soon as it's available, they can begin spending it. We don't have to have a contract with them. We contract directly with them. We don't go through middlemen. Okay. Uh, as soon as it's available, this is a unique ability we have with these funds. And so of the $535 million in humanitarian assistance funding, they can currently spend 267 million, and by July 17th, they can spend all of it. So that is in addition to the, that is part of the overall funding that we've made available, which is a billion dollars that we've made available, which is, it's in their hands to do work now. Um, we are looking at ways of actually streamlining the process. Um, we are committed to fully obligate all this humanitarian assistance by the end of, the, of July. I have to tell you, these are extraordinary times. Previous to the global pandemic, we were running very large-scale humanitarian assistance uh, efforts 
in very difficult places like Yemen, Iraq, South Sudan, and Syria. And the global pandemic has also affected our own, our own workforce as well. But we are adapting and we're streamlining and we're, and we're meeting the challenge. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thanks, Mr. Thank Chairman. you, Senator Kane. Uh, to our witnesses, thank you so much. You've been very patient with us. And uh, this is a part of the puzzle that uh, we're trying to solve here. We, we appreciate uh, your thoughts on it. Uh, we hope to hold a number uh, of these hearings to try to, uh, to get uh, as much input as we can and then as a committee sit down and, uh, and try to construct a bill that is going to move us forward and uh, that when, when this happens again, and I think we're all in, um, under the belief that it is gonna happen again, hopefully later rather than sooner, that we'll be more ready for it and uh, hopefully we'll have some legislation that, uh, that will address that. So with that, thank you again uh, uh, for uh, your service and thank you for attending this hearing. The committee's adjourned.